Good morning. We're taking a break from our series through the book of Romans. Uh, it is the 4th of July. And of course, on July 4th, 1776, the Second Continental Congress uh, passed, uh, ratified the Declaration of Independence. And of course, that didn't mean that our, our country was practically free. There was a revolutionary war uh, to win. And uh, that followed, of course, in God's providence. And then the Constitution was passed in 1789. Um, but the Declaration of Independence was very important for a number of reasons. Um, one of the reasons was that it gave the framers, our founding fathers, in, in their mind, uh, moral justification for their break with Great Britain and for the, um, the war that was already started and uh, that was not quite halfway over yet. Uh, it was also a way of uniting the colonists together for the cause of the, the revolution. In fact, John Adams, the second president of the United States, uh, later on estimated that uh, on July 4th, 1776, probably one-third, one-third of the colonists were actually committed to the revolution. Either they were loyalists, that is, loyal to the British crown and against, revolting against the crown, or they were on the fence. But the uh, colonists were not by and large, in favor of the Revolutionary War. And part of the purpose of the Declaration of Independence was to uh, win more support among the colonists to do that. And part of the way that the framers of the Declaration of Independence did that was by strengthening its contents in terms of reformed theology, and I'm not kidding. I totally believe that. I believe that it's well documented. Uh, Thomas Jefferson was the main human author of the Declaration of Independence, but he reported to the Second Continental Congress and to the drafting committee. And when he, the first draft that he submitted to them had one mention of God in the whole thing, and we're going to talk about that when, when it talks about nature's God. Um, that was from the pen of Thomas Jefferson. But the other mentions of God in the Declaration of Independence, so there's nature's God, there's the mention of God as creator, there's also the, the mention of God in terms of the supreme judge, and also the God of providence. Uh, those were added by the Continental Congress because they were trying to appeal to the colonists who were mainly Calvinistic. Calvinistic churches today are obviously in the minority, but it wasn't always so. In 1776, 98% of colonists identified themselves as Protestants and reformed churches of different stripes 
They were the, the, the largest denomination of Christians in the colonists. There were some 500 um, Presbyterian congregations. And back then, if you were a Presbyterian, you were, by definition, a Calvinist. But there were Presbyterian congregations. Uh, there were also reform, Reformed churches that included Dutch and German Reformed, as well as Congregationalists. Um, the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith drew a lot from the Savoy Declaration, which was congregational and Calvinistic. Uh, these days, if you're a congregational church, most of them are not Calvinistic, but they were in 1776. So collectively, they made up the largest religious sector of the United States. And one writer that I've read this week, Jeffrey H. Morrison, he wrote <clears throat> that uh, this one phrase in particular that we will be looking at, as God the supreme judge of the world, that was lifted straight out of a sermon from Jonathan Edwards. So Jonathan Edwards was well known for his sermon Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. But there was um, another sermon that he was famous for, uh, and, and it has to do with uh, the ultimate judgment, how, how God is going to judge the world in righteousness. And in that sermon, he specifically called God um, what the writers of the Declaration of Independence call, called him, the supreme judge of the world. And so by including this language, beefing up the theology of the Declaration of Independence, the Declara Declaration of Independence gained wide support among the Christians, the Protestants, and especially the Calvinists. So much so that King George in England called the um, Revolutionary War uh, the revolution or the rebellion of the Presbyterians. That's how much the Revolutionary War effort owed to the uh, Calvinistic Christians in, Amer in America at the time, and that owes its uh, support to the theology embedded in the Declaration of Independence. So that's what we're going to be doing. But we're not, gonna, we're not so much concerned with that from a historical perspective. I'm pretty much done with laying before you the historical context. But we're going to spend a little bit of time just talking about this theology itself because it's important to the founding of America, but it continues to be important not to the continued survival of America, but to the world at large because this is the truth that God has revealed to us in his word in terms of these points of theology. All right, so that's where we're headed today. And this first point of theology that's embedded in the Declaration of Independence is bound up in those two words, nature's God. Nature's God. So here's how the Declaration of Independence begins. We'll read from it several passages. We're not going to read the whole thing. 
But it begins in Congress, July 4th, 1776, the unanimous declaration of the 13 United States of America. And then these really familiar words. When in the course of human events, it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and of nature's God entitle them, a decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to the separation. So those words, the laws of nature and of nature's God is what we're talking about. Nature's God. And I'm not going to profess to know what exactly Thomas Jefferson meant personally by those words, but I can tell you what most colonists understood by those words in 1776. And I can tell you what the Bible teaches concerning those words. Nature's God acknowledges God as the creator and providential sustainer of the universe, including the earth, life on earth, and including human life. And so there's some familiar Bible texts, like Psalm 24 and verse 1. The earth is the Lord's and all of its fullness, the world and those who dwell therein. That's an important concept. It's not just that God is the creator, but God is the owner of the earth. And everything and everyone in it belongs to the Lord. And in Acts chapter 17, verses 24 through 28, we saw this in our studies through the book of Acts. This, the context was uh, Paul's sermon on Mars Hill to the Athenian philosophers. And when he spoke to those Athenian philosophers, he spoke of the God who made the world and everything in it being Lord of heaven and earth. And this God gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And Paul goes on to say, in him we live and move and have our being. Nature's God. Nature has a God, a God who created nature, a God who sustains nature, a God whose fingerprints are all over nature. But what the writers of the Declaration of Independence were after was a defense, a justification for what they were doing in terms of the Revolutionary War. And so uh, that's where the words, the laws of nature, come into play. There's, there's nature's God in terms of physical creation, but then there's nature's God in terms of morality that is built in uh, to our psyche as God's cr uh, creatures. 
and, and we understand, we recognize the laws of nature. So the laws of nature, this phrase refers to principles that transcend the physical laws of nature. The laws of nature refer to natural moral laws that rational moral creatures like us can recognize. In fact, there's a paper that I read by Brian Andrew Smith and Sarah Morgan Smith, and uh, they describe the use of these words in uh, the Declaration of Independence, and they say, as nature's God, God has provided an order to the world such that certain things are discernible as good or bad by reason. These are the laws of nature by which the signers of the Declaration justify their actions and to which they make their appeal. As biblical Christians, we, we recognize what Paul uh, wrote about in Romans chapter 2, verses 14 and 15 that we saw just a few weeks ago about the, the law written on our hearts. Paul describes the fact that as image bearers of God, every one of us has the law of God that's summarized in the Ten Commandments written on our hearts. Now, that's been greatly obscured by the fall. It's been obscured, defaced, vandalized, weakened, whatever, but it's still there. And that's why Paul would write in Romans chapter 2 that even Gentiles who don't have the law in written form like the Jews did, they do by nature what the law requires. And they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness. And it's amazing to me that in a world that is supposed to be chaotic, governed by the laws of chance and evolution, nevertheless, human beings in every place and time have a moral code that has some semblance to the Ten Commandments. Uh, human beings recognize that there is a deity or deities to be worshipped, that it's wrong to murder, it's wrong to steal, it's wrong to lie, it's wrong to take another man's wife, etc., etc. And, uh, of course, people don't actually keep this understanding of the law perfectly. That's part of the fall. But nevertheless, we have the law written in our hearts. We have a conscience, and that is where we recognize the laws of nature. Because our creator is not just an engineer. Our creator is a moral being. And so uh, we, we recognize the laws of nature and the writers of the Declaration of Independence appealed to these laws of nature to justify what they were doing. And then Christians in America caught on to that. They uh, resonated with them. Oh, yeah, yes, of course. 
Um, that's what's understood by uh, truths that are self-evident, the laws of nature. The, uh, the second element of theology that's embedded in the Declaration of Independence is God as our creator. That, of course, is related to the first one, but there's a specific um, aspect of God's uh, role or um, identity as creator that the writers of the Declaration of Independence appealed to. So creator, that's number two. So reading on in the Declaration of Independence, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and their pursuit of happiness. So it's not just that God is the creator of heaven and earth, the seas and all that is in them. He is, but he's more than that. He's, the cre he's our creator. He's the creator of all men. And today, we have to be more careful to be more inclusive. He's the creator of all human beings, men women, males, females, all mankind. He's our creator. And they say that all of us are created by God equal. And you remember, I'm sure, Genesis 127, where we're told, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And so here is this imago Dei, the image of God that is in man. The image of God is what sets human beings apart from all other creatures. It's what makes us not animals. I remember years ago, um, watching these Disney videos that we bought for our kids. And there's this one, and I'm forgetting what it was called, but Jiminy Cricket sings this song that talks about how, how wonderful you are because you, you're a human animal. That was Disney way back in the 50s or 60s. And uh, I remember we uh, would play that for our kids, and then I got saved and then I realized, I don't want my kids learning that they're a human animal. And so we stopped showing them that video and we taught them the children's catechism. Who made you? God made you. Why did God make you? For his own glory, etc., etc. But anyway, we are not animals. We, uh, we share certain uh, design commonalities with animals because we have a common creator. And because God has made us physical beings, and so there's a lot in common with certain animals that we have, but we're fundamentally different than animals because human beings and human beings alone are image bearers of God. Amen. So there's certain aspects of God's personality, if you will, 
that are uniquely reflected in mankind. Like the fact that we have a conscience. We have this this innate understanding of good and evil, of truth and lies, of right and wrong. We have this appreciation for for beauty. We have this uh, drive to invent and to innovate and to create like the creator in a very unique way. And because we are image bearers of God, we all share together in the unique dignity, value, and worth inherent as God's God's image bearers. There's no human being who is not an image bearer of God. There's no human being who does not have dignity, value, and worth as an image bearer of God. And that's why governments are supposed to protect and serve their citizens and not lord it over them. Governments have the responsibility from God to protect their unalienable rights of their citizens, rights that come from God, not from government. And that is what makes America unique. Because in the history of governments, governments uh, acquire more and more and more power so that the government is supposed to be viewed by its subjects as the absolute, whether it's the emperor or whether it's the king or whether it's the communist party of China, but the government is to be viewed as the absolute. That's statism. The state is to be worshipped. The state is to be trusted in. The state is to be obeyed without question. And whatever you have is to be viewed as coming from the government. I saw this video a while ago, a few years ago, that was put out by, by PBS. It was a good video on PBS. And it was about a bunch of ophthalmologists from America and I think Europe who went into North Korea. And that's before Kim Jong-un was the dear leader and his father was in power. And um, they, they did a whole bunch of surgeries in several weeks. Uh, eye surgeries, by the way, that people in the West now take for granted. You, you hardly meet anybody in America who is blind because of a cataract. But in North Korea, hardly anybody who had a cataract was not blind. That was like the sentence that you had as a sufferer of cataracts in North Korea. And so this team of ophthalmologists went into North Korea and they uh, performed hundreds of surgeries on people that Americans take for granted. And I'll never forget the scene when the, the bandages 
from uh, the surgery were removed because people were still blind, right? You have the surgery, you wear a bandage for several days, and then the cameras of PBS were there to capture the moment when the people had their bandages removed. And what caught me, uh, well, the, their first reaction, we would all understand because it was like uh, the, the blind man in the New Testament whom Jesus healed, he was blind and now he could see. But people were crying and they were thanking and praising the dear leader. The dear leader. They didn't thank the United States of America who sent that team of ophthalmologists. They, they didn't thank the uh, God of all creation who gave human beings wisdom and skill to be able to heal blindness in some cases. No, they thanked and praised in language that we are familiar with as Christians, language that we use to thank and praise Jesus Christ. They use those words to thank and praise their dear leader, But that's really been common throughout human history. Statism, the religion in which the state is supreme. And we owe everything to the state. And the reason why the framers of the Declaration of Independence were successful in building political support for their movement is because it resonated with Americans that there is no supreme leader except Jesus Christ. There's no king except the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Amen. And they were tired of chase of chafing under the thumb of King George. And it was the same reason, by the way, uh, that then led to the rise of the abolitionist movement, which eventually led, well, it contributed to the tension between the North and the South that led to the Civil War and ultimately uh, Abraham Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation. Um, the abolitionist movement was energized and led by Christians who believed that African Americans those who were brought here as slaves from Africa, and then their descendants who were born into slavery. They believed that they as well were image bearers of God and therefore could not be treated as property. They should have been treated with respect, with value and dignity and worth like everybody else. And it was the same abolitionist movement uh, that eliminated slavery in Great Britain that had its heart and soul from Christians and a Christian worldview. Remember, without a Christian worldview, you have atheism, you have statism, and you have no purpose, no worth, no inherent value, you're, you're, you're just dust in the wind. You're just a number to be managed and controlled 
and ultimately put to death by the government. That's why so many millions of people, hundreds of millions of people have been murdered in the 20th century in the name of statism. And it just breaks my heart. It does. It breaks my heart to hear American college students and public school students talk positively about communism. Communism leads to human suffering and death. And that's not in theory. That's what history has shown. Wherever communism is put into practice, you need an all-powerful state to implement it And the state squashes everybody who gets in the way. And because they don't have the same worldview expressed in our Declaration of Independence, there's no human rights. And people are forced to fall into line. And it's terrifying to me. It's heartbreaking to me that so many Americans are ready to lay aside their liberty in the name of public health, or critical race theory, or whatever. Suicide. It's suicide as a nation. So, creator. Uh, In Romans 13 and verse 4, Paul tells us that God's the one who has instituted government. We should not be anarchists. We should obey the the government. And there's a point of contention. There was during the Revolutionary War times, and there continues to be today, whether the the colonists really were on solid ground biblically to revolt. But John Calvin himself argued and taught that there are instances in which the civil magistrate no longer has the blessing of God, and lesser civil magistrates should get them out of office, and if not them, then the people. And there were several other Reformed thinkers who argued along those lines, but the point that I wanted to draw your attention from Romans 13 and verse 4, I'll turn there, Romans 13 and verse 4, is this. Romans 13 and verse 4. For the civil magistrate, the governing authority, he is God's servant for your good. That's a big statement. Remember, in totalitarian governments, statism, the government is not the servant of the people. The people are the servant of of the government. The government owes its authority to its might, to its power, its ability to persecute people, kill people, put them into prison, subordinate them. But a biblical worldview views the government as under the authority of God, our Creator with the express purpose 
not of uh, getting the people to knuckle under and, and uh, uh, be serfs, but with the purpose of actually serving the people for their good. And I just hope that all of us recognize how unique our country is in that perspective. Do you understand that? Do you know that there are so many people on planet Earth today and throughout human history that live in countries under governments that just don't see it that way? And I believe our government is more and more going downhill into a statist, a statism frame of mind. That uh, the, the, I, I believe there are many people in government already, many people who want to get into government, many people in academia who are teaching that basically the purpose of government is to get more and more power. I hope, I hope that we will all be thankful to God, our creator, for the worldview that is expressed in our Declaration of Independence and that has had a huge impact on our country and its founding and our, our history. All right, moving on. So, nature's God, creator, that's in the beginning of the Declaration of Independence. Now, towards the end, God is called the supreme judge of the world the supreme judge of the world. The, right, the Declaration of Independence reads, We, therefore, the representatives of the United States of America in General Congress assembled, appealing to the supreme judge of the world for the rectitude of our intentions, do in the name and by the authority of the good people of these colonies, solemnly publish and declare that these united colonies are and of right ought to be free and independent states, that they are absolved from all allegiance to the British crown and that all political connection between them and the state of Great Britain is and ought to be totally dissolved. So remember those words that they were appealing to the supreme judge of the world for the rectitude of our intentions. So Jeffrey Morrison, in his uh, paper that's really, really good, it's called Political Theology in the Declaration of Independence. He mentions Jonathan Edwards, uh, who lived from 1703 to 1758, and people who know and appreciate Jonathan Edwards continue to uh, think of Jonathan Edwards uh, as the, um, the uh, most important intellectual person in the history of our country. By the way, in a twist of historical irony, Jonathan Edwards died from a vaccine. He, he died from the smallpox vaccine in 1758. But anyway... So in his sermon that I alluded to earlier, it was called The Final Judgment. And he used the, pre the precise phrase, the supreme judge of the world. 
And he did this before the appearance of the Declaration of Independence. And uh, Jeffrey Morrison writes that in that sermon, Edwards promised to show that God is the supreme judge of the world, that there is a time coming when God will, in the most public and solemn manner, judge the whole world, that the person by whom he will judge it is Jesus Christ, that the transactions of that day will be greatly interesting and truly awful, that all shall be done in righteousness. And the subtitle of the first section of Edward's treatise was called, God is the Supreme Judge of the World. So, Jonathan Edwards to the Declaration of Independence. But where did Jonathan Edwards get that idea? He got it from the Bible. We've seen recently from the book of Ecclesiastes, um, a book that was probably written by uh, Solomon, and it seems as if it is Solomon's declaration of repentance, because he wrote the book of Proverbs as well, and then he backslid in a way that we couldn't imagine. He had, he had many, many wives and concubines, and we're told in 2 Kings chapter 11, I think it was, that uh, his many wives turned his heart away from the God of the Bible and uh, became an idolater. And in the book of Ecclesiastes, he does this survey of his life in which he's trying all kinds of different ways to find meaning and happiness and fulfillment, including riches, including sex, quite frankly, including work. And his conclusion is, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. In other words, it's all useless. It's all meaningless. It all passes away. It's all temporary. It doesn't satisfy the soul. And at the end of the book of Ecclesiastes, he says that after this survey of his life and experiences in which whatever his uh, fleshly desires were, he did not hold himself back. After all of those experiences, he wrote, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is man's all. This is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. And we know that. We know that. Fallen people, because of our consciences, because of uh, God's own representative within them, they know that there's coming a day of judgment. They know it. That's why they're so afraid of dying. That's why death is so scary, because their conscience accuses them that there's something wrong, there's something not right in their relationship 
with God, and so they fear death. And we have this instinct of accountability. And even the framers of the Declaration of Independence knew that. And so they're basically saying, we know our consciences, we know our motivations, we know why we're doing this, and it's not just to be rebels, it's not just to have an independent spirit, we entrust ourselves to um, the supreme judge of the world. In Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12, we read, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. That's why Christians preach the gospel. Because there's coming a day when not only the writers of the Declaration of Independence, but all people, all of us, are going to stand in judgment before God. We're all going to give an account. And as the writer of the book of Hebrews writes, we're going to give an account concerning our thoughts and intentions. And as Solomon wrote in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, it's going to include every secret thing. And as Jesus said in Matthew chapter 12, it will even include every idle word. And so if you think that you're going to be okay on the day of judgment because you're not a murderer or you're not a whatever, fill in the blank. You're deceiving yourself because God's not going to grade on a curve. He's going to grade according to the absolute standard of righteousness his own law, and he's going to apply that not only to our actions, but our thoughts, our motivations, and our words. And we're told, as we've seen in the book of Romans, on that day, every mouth will be stopped, and the whole world will become guilty before God. That's why we need Jesus. Because Jesus and Jesus alone is the Lord our righteousness who came in human flesh. He knew no sin. He never sinned. He didn't have a sinful nature. And so the man, Christ Jesus, lived in perfect obedience to all of God's commands. And then when he went to the cross, it wasn't just because people sent him there. It was because behind the scenes, that was God's eternal plan. He, he's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the Lamb of God who was slain before the foundation of the world. He was delivered up by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. That's why people took him by murderous hands. But this was God's plan. And so Jesus in his life worked out a perfect righteousness for us. And then when he died on the cross, God's justice, God's wrath was poured out on Jesus. He absorbed 
the wrath of God in our place so that God, the uh, supreme judge of all the world, could be both just and the, un, uh, I'm sorry, he could be both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. That is what Jonathan Edwards meant. That's what the Bible means by appealing to God as the supreme judge of the world. And then the writers of the Declaration of Independence recognized that uh, God is the God of providence. It's the God of providence. So they wrote, and for the support of this declaration, with a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence, we mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. So they had a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence. Remember, this was not included in Thomas Jefferson's draft that he submitted to the Second Continental Congress. They added it. Where did they get this from? Well, remember, the colonists were dominated theologically by Calvinism, the Reformed faith. And so, in the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 5, the, um, presby the uh, Presbyterians wrote a chapter dealing with providence. And here's how providence is described in the Westminster Confession of Faith. God, the great creator of all things, upholds, directs, disposes, and governs all creatures, actions, and things from the greatest to the least by his, by his most wise and holy providence according to his certain foreknowledge and the free and immutable counsel of his own will to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, goodness, and mercy. And there's a slew of Bible passages. There's just one that I'll uh, direct your attention to. Ephesians 1 and verse 11, that God works all things according to the counsel of his will. And to the Christian, the doctrine of the providence of God is not scary. To an unbeliever, it probably is. Because the God that we have rebelled against as sinners is not a small God. He cannot be fit in a man-sized box. He's a big God. He's larger than any conception of God we could ever imagine. No wonder an unbeliever wants to have boundaries on the sovereignty of God. But there are no boundaries for God within his creation. In all of creation, he upholds, directs, disposes, and governs all creatures, actions, and things from the greatest to the least. The whole universe depended 
on God for its creation, the whole universe continues to depend on God for its continued existence. Only God is self-existent. Nothing else is. So to an unbeliever, scary. To a believer, wow, I can't imagine anything more comforting. Because this God who has given us so many great and precious promises, like all things work together for our good, to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. How can that be true if God isn't in sovereign control of all things? If there is some molecule on some asteroid floating around in the most distant part of our universe that God is not in control of, then we have no reason to trust any of God's promises. But that can never be. Jesus thought of the doctrine of the providence of God as a very comforting thing. So in Matthew chapter 10, verses 28 through 33, he said, And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, Jesus said, you are of more value than many sparrows. providence of God. And then finally, God is presented in the Declaration of Independence as the giver of freedom that is not free. The giver of freedom that is not free. He's the giver of freedom because according to the worldview of the Declaration of Independence, human liberty, human freedom is consistent with our being image bearers of God. And then it's God's providence that led the framers of the Declaration of Independence to July 4th, 1776. God is the giver of that freedom. But they acknowledged in these words of the Declaration that freedom is not free. That's why they wrote, we mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. The signers knew that the freedom spoken of in the Declaration would not be free. They knew that by putting their signatures on that document, they were giving themselves a death sentence if England won. Freedom is never free. President Ronald Reagan said, Freedom is never more than one generation away from extinction. We didn't pass it to our children in the bloodstream. 
It must be fought for, protected, and handed on for them to do the same. And the freedom that the Christian gospel is all about. Freedom from God's judgment because of our sins. Freedom from the fear of death because of our guilty consciences. Freedom from, the, from bondage to sin. That spiritual freedom that the gospel brings is not free either. It was purchased with a price. In Revelation chapter 1 and verse 5, the Apostle John refers to Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. As Christians, we are free. Jesus said, you shall know the truth, the truth of the gospel, and the truth shall set you free. And he also says, if you know the truth and you follow the truth, then you're truly my disciple. And whoever is my, my disciple, the Son of Man has set you free indeed. So Christians are not just free in terms of the Declaration of Independence, we're not free just in terms of the civil liberties that we enjoy in America. We are free for time and for eternity. We have been set free from what the death sentence, because of our sin, requires. It's all been taken away because Jesus died and rose again. On this 4th of July, on this Independence Day, if you're not a Christian, what a perfect time, what a perfect time to be saved, to come to the Lord Jesus in repentance and faith, in your heart, confessing your sins, acknowledging your need of him, confessing that you deserve to go to hell because of your sins, and throwing yourself the foot of the cross, depending on the mercy of Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this wonderful country that you and your providence raised up. And we thank you that this is our land. This is our home. But we thank you even more importantly, Lord, for our salvation. Thank you that Jesus died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was delivered up for our transgressions and raised from the dead for our justification. And we thank you, Lord, that our ultimate citizenship is in heaven. And from heaven, we await the return of of our Savior. Lord, we thank you for our heavenly hope, and we pray that you would encourage our hearts as Christians and Americans today, and that you would even save souls in our midst. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen.